Hello and welcome to Living in a Time of Dying, the podcast about living in a time of global pandemic, social upheaval and injustice, climate catastrophe, and mass extinction. This podcast is a companion to the eponymous book, Living in a Time of Dying, Cries of Grief, Rage, Love, and Hope, co-authored by myself and Taoist mystic, Toltec I Ching master, wisdom teacher, and my dear friend, William Douglas Horden. I'm your host, Megan Elizabeth Tauk, a writer, philosopher, soul mentor, perpetual student, and mother of possums. In this podcast, I and my guests will engage with a selection of chapters from the book to explore the questions, the conundrums, paradox, and fractal edges of this thing called living. This is an invitation to commune and feel together the weight of these times with all the grief, rage, love, and hope that it arouses within us so that together we may dream a new world into being. Welcome, dear listeners. We are back with Dr. Jason Corwin for the second installment of our discussion around the material of Chapter 10, titled A Crisis of Belonging. If you haven't listened to the first part of this conversation, I urge you to go back and listen to it first, because it really lays some important groundwork for where we're going to be jumping off from in our discussion today. So go back, listen to the previous episode, and we'll be waiting here for you when you catch up. Welcome back, Jason. It's good to be here with you again. It's great to be back. I have to say that when we ended our conversation last time, which was a couple of weeks ago now, as we're recording this, I I feel like I was high for like two days after that conversation. I mean, I was just, there was so much energy in my system. I was buzzing. As I told you uh, just before we started recording, I have copious amounts of notes that I immediately was just like, on my computer trying to get everything that was happening. We left it at such a, um, with such potent material and it really uh, got things moving for me. Um, so I've really been looking forward to getting back into the studio with you to continue that conversation. And, um, you know, so some of the things that I was really thinking about when we closed last week was around the construct of race and how the construct of race has severed and fragmented us, you know, chopped us up, diced us up, divided and conquered us as it was meant to do. Um, and how this is experienced, you know, albeit differently for different groups, but it's experienced as a trauma, right? It's, it's actually an experience of pain um, that I think we've, some of us more than others, have accepted, come to accept as a, just a normal, natural way of living in the world with each other. And it, it comes by great violence and it causes great harm and great pain. Um, so that's really what I was sitting with after our last conversation and after listening to the poem by John Trudell. Um, and also just listening to your uh, story and recounting of, of the, the history that, that you grew up in, um, you know, through the American Indian movement. So, so I'm just... Um, acknowledging that that's here now with us today as we have that conversation. And I kind of want to invite it in, invite that pain and that trauma 
and that grief to to take a seat here in this conversation because it's with us always and uh, it deserves to be named yeah you know that it's it's something that we can relate to everyone at, at this, in this human experience that you know the we live in this experience of strong contrasts and dualities and you know that there there's no people on the planet that haven't been affected by the the fact that while we're capable of of such beautiful things and and loving things as a species we've also been capable of of the most horrific mistreatments of one another and you know what you were saying just now had me wondering like especially in the context of of the questions and the ideas that uh, the book brings up these deeper psycho-spiritual aspects of our lives as like you know anyone has has experienced separation no matter how ostensibly comfortable and good their life has been because at our very beginning we start and we're, we're we're nurtured in our mother's wombs for approximately nine months and uh everything is provided for us and we we're in this protective space in this this very nurturing space and then all of a sudden through through this you know very forceful process we we're released from our mother's womb into this world um and and now we're in a place where where um you know our our body experiences uh temperature and and so we can be you know hot or cold we we we're hungry uh and we're not always held in that in, in that bathing life-giving water of of the womb and we're completely dependent on the adults in our world and particularly our mothers to continue to provide nourishment. So that there's an immediate shock, like jumping in a pool of cold water or, or um, that, you know, and, and then we go through a process of development and, and um, socialization that may or may not be a nurturing one. And, and so these deep, uh, experiences are, are there in, in our psyche and our subconscious that, that have to be processed. And, and when they're not processed well, then it seems to lead to people being absolutely horrible to one another, whether in the context of, of a family unit or, and, and within a society or in societies waging wars. Uh, and doing other hurtful things against each other, like, which has been going on for a very long time. And so, you know, we, we, we then those traumas, we, some people create further separations and, and 
on isms, whether it's ethnocentricisms or sexisms or and, and mm-hmm. any other kind of ways of, of othering people as not being a part of our circle. And, and you know, we're in, in, in sort of a constant tension with maybe our, our history as uh, a species that uh, in a world where, where there are other predators and there are other um, hazards in, in the landscape, whether, you know, cliffs or rapids or poisonous animals, snakes, plants. Um, and so survival is not guaranteed. And, and so in fact, in fact, it's guaranteed that you will not survive. Yeah. Unless, unless you, uh, cooperate. Exactly. And, and, you know, I, I, kind of an aside, but I, I think it's kind of obvious on, in some of these like survival shows that are on TV, like alone, they, you know, drop people off in, in these, um, you know, pretty, um, challenging environments and they got to try to survive on their own with only 10 things from the modern world. And these are areas where indigenous people have lived for millennia and throughout all the seasons, but they survived there, um, through cooperation Mm. and, and, you know, we, we live in a world of potential great abundance to supply our needs but we we have that free will to um, either participate and cooperate in a reciprocal way with that natural world and with the community around us, or we descend into fear of there not being enough, and, and then we try to um, look out for our own self-interest, and, and we create rationalizations and systems of belief to... Um, to justify us looking out for only ourselves. Mm. Yeah. You know, I've mentioned many times on this podcast thus far, uh, scarcity mindedness. And, and it occurs to me as I listen to you speak that there is sort of a a parallel crisis of scarcity uh, that, that, that goes along with this crisis of belonging where when we, when we don't experience that, um, that, cooperative reciprocity rootedness to place uh, you know when we don't feel held and supported by both the community and uh kind of a living web of relations to borrow that phrase um it, it's really scary like it there's a scare there's a feeling of scarcity and not enoughness that i think engenders a tremendous amount of fear and insecurity and you know it's interesting that you bring up, you know, that you started with this concept of coming out of the womb, right? And 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 experiencing separateness for the first time when we're born, literally into an individual body in the world, which is um, a universal experience, right? We're all born. We all experience mm-hmm. that first uh, that first separation, and yet it makes me think about. Um, you know, about 15 years ago, I started studying the work of, of in the lineage of Wilhelm Reich. And he's a problematic person. I'm aware of that. And, 
you know, he uh, was a psychologist, kind of a contemporary of Jung and Freud and Adler and all them. And um, without getting too much into his work, he theorized and his and his students who carried on his work in in a certain way uh, theorized about these defense structures, like literal ways that that defensiveness and fear live in our bodies um, and affect our the movement of energy in our in our systems, et cetera. And I remember, uh, I bring this up because I remember, you know, when I was first learning about this, and he was a Austrian, German, I don't know, he's European of some kind in the early 20th century. Um, I remember it being taught about how that's like a, it's a universal experience. All of these, there's five of these, you know, defense structures in his system. And they're all a universal thing that then create these, these defensive postures. And we, so we move through the world kind of defending against these threats of scarcity and disempowerment or being overpowered, you know, all of these, these things. And to a certain degree, I feel like, yeah, okay, that's a universal experience in the way that being born is a universal experience of separation from the womb and from that matrix of life. But I also, it made me question, you know, in the way that like mm. Western philosophy and psychology likes to say, oh, all humans are the same. They all experience the same thing. This is a universal, they kind of want to like ontologize humanity to make it really, you know, uh, cut and dry uh, from a white perspective, from a European perspective. And that, that, that never really sat right with me. And it made me think, you know, this is something I've been chewing on for over a decade now about how the, as you know, as you, as you express, there are different ways of nurturing human beings once we come out into the world and so that, into that experience of being in a body. And I wonder, this is a point of question for me, I wonder how much the experience of colonization, of living within a colonized space, exacerbates, let's say, that those defensive posturing, right? And so it becomes very convenient to say, you know, in kind of a Hobbesian sense of like, uh, you know, the world is is a is a violent place, and we all need to protect ourselves, and it's each man for himself, et cetera, uh, to kind of like take a broad stroke and say that's how humanity is like that's what it means to be human and it's like well actually no because there are humans who have who have lived for for millennia uh without living that way and in fact it's actually been a very short period of time that mm -hmm. there are so certain humans who have been abusing one another in the ways that that we see and experience today yeah, you know, recently I, I read a little bit of uh, a book by David Graeber and David Wenrow. Yes, um, the the new dawn of everything. Yes, or something, something like that. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. Um, and 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 it really calls into question the these um, narratives of human development in history that uh, you know. European and European American, European Canadian uh, academics have sort of offered as this is this is the accepted narrative of human development of civilization and um, societies of, of of more egalitarian and uh, democratic practices and and it completely starts to upend 
some of that. So I think, yeah. so you've read a little bit of it too, or I have not read that. It? It, it is a tome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's quite a large book and it is sitting, staring at me uh, from my bookshelf. I think my mom read part of it or most of it. It's on oh, my, yeah, and yeah, my yeah. dad read it and turned me on to it. Gotta love our parents. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, so I kind of I, I feel drawn to to talk some history, you know, for the benefit of our of our listeners here. Um, and I was thinking about this after our last conversation. You know, in the book, I say uh, I think the quote is that we were all indigenous once. And in the revised version of the book, there's a little blurb, uh, a little footnote at the bottom that I you know I acknowledge that even the cons like the term indigenous is a post-colonial term in a certain sense. It's a, it's a term that, that um, designates those who exist in resistance to the colonized or colonial uh, kind of modern Western world. Um, in other words, hundreds of years ago, you were not considered indigenous. Your, 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 your ancestors were um, just the people who lived in a place. And then the people who lived near them were those people who lived in a place. And you had your languages and you had your cultures and you had your communities, your nations, et cetera. And, you know, that was true for so-called white people as well. You know, as James Baldwin says, those who need to believe they are white, people like myself. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so if we were all indigenous once, if we all were rooted in place in that way, once, or, or as John Trudell says in the quote that you read, all human beings are descendants of tribal people who were spiritually alive, intimately in love with the natural world, children of Mother Earth, right? Um, how, how did that dispossession happen? And uh, it, particularly, I think, for European people. And so I just want to kind of give a little, like, super brief history lesson for anybody who's who's listening and saying like where does all this kind of come from um and i was thinking about this too in relation to what you brought up in our last conversation around pretendianism so maybe i can tie it back in uh to that as well but so um you know european peoples went through several hundred years of what i would term colonization you know, by the Roman Empire, there were warring kingdoms, and then eventually, as as Britain, in particular, became kind of a, a more massive force, in and and these sort of uh, kingdoms started to coalesce in you know what was then Prussia and France, etc. Um, something called enclosure started to happen. This was this was the the, the transition from the feudal order into uh, mercantilist and then eventually capitalist order was this process of enclosure. And so if, if people hadn't already been kind of uh, kicked off of their lands in the feudal days because they couldn't pay the land tax uh, to the feudal lords, uh, mercantilism and enclosure came along and really, really squeezed people by privatizing land and selling it mainly for monocrop sheep and wool farm, which was profitable at the time. Um, this was in like the, I want to say 14th, 15th centuries, this process. And so what you had was you had a, a tremendous amount of uh, number of people, you know, poor, had been peasants, right, in the feudal order, who were became landless and um, moved into cities, started working in early kind of pre-industrial revolution 
factories, you know, making fabrics, et cetera, with, with the wool that was being farmed on the land that their people had lived on f- for millennia. And they were poor, and a lot of them got kicked into poor houses, you know, kind of early prisons. Um, and those were the people who were first kind of shipped in waves as indentured servants to the American colonies on Turtle Island. And so already they had experienced hundreds of years of their own dispossession, right? The loss of their languages, the loss of their communities, the loss of their relationships to the places that they had coexisted for hundreds, thousands of years. Um, and they they had experienced that at the hands of a tr- tremendous violence. And I, you know, I want to be clear, I'm not trying to equate uh, that experience of, of enclosure and dispossession of Europeans with the, the um, colonization and genocide that indigenous Americans experienced at the hands of Europeans here in the so-called United States. I want to be really clear about that. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, there, there was a magnitude of, of difference, certainly. Um, but the, the psychosocial, spiritual dynamics that, that allowed that to take place and that that's why they were able to come and um, dehumanize others was, was they had been subjected to it for so long. You know, a lot of native peoples have sought to try to understand what, you know, what motivated these people to uh, come. And, and at, at first, many peoples were, were wanting to be very trusting. I mean, the Taino were yep. so generous with Columbus and, and he said, um, Oh, you know, this is like an Eden here, but their people are so, um, they're so kind and generous and it'll be easy with, you know, a few soldiers to enslave them. So what makes that mentality? It's two completely different worldviews coming to meeting. Yeah. And you see what the outcome of those two worldviews, those two orientations. Yeah. 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 So Trudell, he's, he, he, and I've heard um, some elders like um, the late um, Chief Jake Swamp uh, from the Mohawk Nation speak about what happened with uh, the colonization and genocide over here was, was because a virus of, of the mind and spirit had already taken place and, 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 and it spread across the world through colonization. So that uh, while a large number of people in the world were, were going through their own process of evolution to discover how to live harmoniously with, with their local lands and waters um, and how to construct societies that worked for them for, for better or for worse over time would then completely got subsumed by this disproportionate impact of, of um, people who were, you know, able to expand that this force outwards through through ships and through uh, mm. military power. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting to hear you term it the the I forget what you said the virus of um, whatever those the quote from John Trudell. Yeah, um, yeah Columbus was a virus. 
Yeah, because, you know, I've been, I, I think about this a lot and I've been working on a project which hopefully will become a book <laughs> eventually. I don't, I never want to count my chickens, right? Um, but I've been doing a lot of research and hypothesizing and my my own hypothesis around if I can put words to that virus is in my, you know, philosophical academic rhetoric, uh, an epistemology of, or epistemologies rather, of severance and separation, of dominance and hegemony, and of extraction or appropriation, right? That those are sort of the three main ingredients, at least in terms of my own thinking, as I've been doing research into this history and into, you know, what I talk about elsewhere as the trauma of whiteness that 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 primed us for be for acting as that virus right for that primed columbus to show up and meet the taino with that uh with that orientation of enslavement right of 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 objectification that makes it easy to then say um i'm going to just take these people their bodies their lands um and i think that it's those ingredients of first severance, a severance from like literally a fragmentation that that really rents the soul of the individual um, that then allows for objectification and dominance over as well as extraction and appropriation of. And I've been working with that kind of framework when I think about uh, whiteness and colonization, um, you know, and kind of the the conglomerate, if I'm to, if I can uh, borrow the the phrase from from Bell Hooks, in which I use in the in the book, of the imperialist white supremacist capitalist cis heteropatriarchy, right? That how all of those pieces uh, interlock and intermingle to create this kind of behemoth of colonization and whiteness that has. Um, that exists in different ways across the globe, that, but, but because of uh, the British Empire and now the American Empire, um, the United States Empire, has spread throughout the globe. And so I think it, it touches most, if not everyone. Um, I mean, at least <laughs> it, it touches everyone in the, very, in the extreme through climate change, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but so anyway, as I'm listening to you, that's kind of the the terminology that I'm that I'm using, and and what I when I think about how this process of dispossession and colonization happened in white bodies that then came here to Turtle Island and enslaved black bodies and um, committed genocide against indigenous people, and you know I. I was thinking about this in the context of what you brought up in our last conversation around pretendianism and this kind of uh, vacuity uh, that that we see in, in broadly speaking white people. I'm I'm sort of I'm moving away from racial terms. I find them very uh, anyway. That's a whole other conversation, but. <sighs> It's 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 too reductive, <laughs> like so many things that have been created by that uh, that imperialist white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy. Those uh, those boundaries and borders are too are too reductive. Um, but once we become severed, once we objectify the world, it's so easy to then just experience to 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 feel uh, welcome to just take and um, take from others and try to kind of fill that void and. Um, 
appropriate a kind of facsimile of belonging. And I want to tell you about the dream that I had the night after our last conversation. Mm. So I woke up the very next day and I had dreamt that you and I were meeting in person on the commons in Ithaca, a place we both know well. Mm -hmm. But there was some confusion about where we were going to meet. And I was on one side of the commons and you went into like Angry Mom Records on the other side. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, he's going to be at Angry Mom Records. And then, but, all, but by that time I figured that out, you had already left to try to find me. And so we were kind of crossing paths. But in the way that dreams are kind of everywhere, everything everywhere all at once. Um, here's the salient parts. You arrived in full headdress of feathers. But the feathers, the headdress was like crumbling. It was like falling apart. And so there were, there were feathers that were falling to the ground. And when I went to find you, I saw these feathers that had fallen from your headdress. And I thought, oh, Jason was here. I, I know that he was here. But um, I picked them up, and it's like I, I knew that these were sacred, that this was a sacred piece. And for some reason, I, I stuck them into my skin on my scalp as if I was putting, in the, uh, putting on the, the headdress, wearing part of the headdress, and I actually stuck the, the, the pin feathers into the skin on my scalp. And they were, so they were kind of sticking out at odd ends from, from my scalp. And I was, and then I went looking for you. And then at some point I, I got, became self-aware and self-conscious. And I was like, wait a minute, this is not okay for me to be, to be wearing these feathers. These are not for me. And I took them out and, and I woke up from that dream, obviously thinking about our conversation and really reflecting on, um, how easy, how easy it is for us as white people to kind of like just pick up and wear and put on kind of as blackface, right? Both metaphorically and sometimes even literally the, um, the cultural, I, I, the, the, I don't want to call them trappings. That's the word that's coming to my mind, but that's not the right mm -hmm. word. Right. Mm -hmm. But like the, the, to, to put those on and to wear those and to feel welcome to do that at the same time that you know, I was also thinking about the concept of blood quantum. And so this this taking of that 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 white people engage in of just like being able to put this on and um and feel a sense of intimacy. That was the word that came up for me as I was reflecting about this. Like feel a sense of closeness and intimacy with the the peoples and the histories and the cultures that we're taking from. But it's a it's 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 like a it's a facsimile of intimacy that is based in an objectification and a taking rather than based in a, a respect and a reciprocity to borrow those words from Cordova and like, and, and a real rootedness. So it's this, it's this facsimile of intimacy that I think, I, I think we long for. And it's like, there's this, it's almost like this ghost of like this thing that, that, um, that we know we're missing. Um, but we don't know what it is that we're missing and we don't know where to go to find it. And yet we see, we see, you know, we see it reflected in the lives and in the cultures of indigenous people, of uh, people of African descent, of Asian, um, you know, various different Asian histories and, and, and modalities. And, and there's this grasping that happens, right? This like, oh, I want to like take that. I want to 
put it, I want to get it in me somehow. And yet it's, um, there's a not rightness to it, right? Like it's, it's, um, it's not consensual. It's not consensual. And it, and it looks a little bit, actually, I want to hear what you have to say. Go. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I think it's, it's a very real thing that has to be, uh, grappled with and, and that, um, folks who who are seeking to um, un, unpack this and and really understand these dynamics for for the the good of their souls and and the greater good of uh, humanity and the planet is is you know how can this be done in a way that 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 absence that is felt, and, or a spiritual void or a cultural void, uh, what is a respectful way that that can be done? And because everything in, in a capitalist society has uh, a price and is able to be bought and sold, uh, and, and because of the, the hegemony of colonization says that, you know, everything is, is available for, the taking that 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 happens and and so you have you know an entire movement of people um quite a bit in north america and i'm sure uh, uh, to degrees in other parts of the world who feel that for them to um be more spiritually in tune with, with something that feels more authentic to them than, than perhaps the religions that they were uh, raised with or not raised with to create this, this phenomenon that's generally labeled as the new age right? Uh, or the new age movement. And, um, and, and which is, you know, alongside it, it, it is a form of pretendianism and, and you know are so unrepentant about it and defensive when it, it's been pointed out how problematic these um, these ways in which it's gone gone about. I mean, indigenous peoples have been very generous from the beginning of contact to um, contemporary times, and there, there were. Um, indigenous spiritual teachers who have been very open to non-indigenous peoples to come and, and learn and to um, experience different ways of knowing and, and having spiritual understanding, but rather than humbling themselves and, and figuring out how to, how to process that, in a reciprocal way, it, it becomes this very consumerist, like, okay, I can take that. Now I can run with it and, and I, and, and I can market it too. Mm -hmm. I'm, I have something special. I, you know, the medicine man took me to a sweat lodge and, you know, now I'm going to have a sweat lodge. Now I'm going to charge people lots of money to come. And, you know, now we're going to, um, bundle up sage and sell it at the health food stores and everybody's going to get to have sage and um, smudge their houses. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a business now, but what 
John Trudell was always pointing out was that, you know, all, all people have this, um, at, at, in our ancestral history and it's all peoples have been affected by colonization, whether people readily who are identified as indigenous peoples or people who are not, it's like Frary talked about the, the impacts of oppression, you know, have to, that the, the people that is directed at suffer from it and the people who are giving it suffer from it and mm-hmm. both have to be dealt with. And so I think we're, we're at this point in, in our human history with this global, very interconnected um, world of, of trade and communications that, that's on a level never before seen. That's also providing us the impact, the, the tools to have these conversations and to hopefully do enough in time to shift the business as usual mm-hmm. into a more sustainable way. And then, and, and, uh, you know, I would, there's certainly some indigenous peoples who've felt like, yes, please understand how we see the world because the way your approach is kind of insane and is going to kill you, kill us and, and, and cause a lot of harm and havoc. Um, but folks in the West, um, Euro-Americans and Euro, um, Europeans that just have, have a difficulty figuring out what that is. And so it's much easier for all of a sudden to, you know, for something like ayahuasca tourism to bloom. And all of a sudden there's tons of people like, yes, I want enlightenment and, you know, go, uh, I want to go to South America and, and sit and I want to, um, drink this tea and and be in a better relation with um the world and with the universe and 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 themselves but it still has has those uh trappings of a taking yeah yeah you know i'm thinking back again to that that piece of of columbus meeting the taino right and the way that like, I want to kind of give most people the benefit of the doubt, right, in terms of intention, and the intention to, um, to, to learn from indigenous cultures, uh, to, 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 you know, to want to become enlightened, like, experience a, a sweat lodge or something like that. But it's like, when we come to it, or, or to, or to, you know, be taking the sage and bundling the sage, and then selling it on Etsy or whatever, you know, it's like, it's like, what happens when you have that, colonial worldview that 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 epistemo- that's based in the epistemologies of severance and uh, extraction and dominance right when you have that over like meet the world of this is indigenous wisdom this is indigenous medicine it's like the only thing that 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 colonial worldview knows how to do is to package it because it's a, it's a, it's a it's a fundamentally objectifying um, worldview that's what happens in the process of the severance, right? And so then you end up saying, well, you know, I'll charge for this because of course I should charge. For this. You know, it's like, it's it's hard to, to get out of that mindset, I think, for those of us who have been really, really steeped in the colonial order and for whom it has really worked, you know, for generations. Um, two things. One, okay, so when I first met 
Marta and William in 2011. They came, so this is a personal story, and uh, they came uh, out to 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 Juan's uh, the compound and uh, Wangovia, as it was called. And um, we did Marta let us in a in an opening ceremony, a four corners ceremony on the first day. I don't know if she did that when you guys had your your uh, your meeting with them in 2012, and she spoke it. She did this this ceremony and she spoke it in the indigenous Nahuatl language because she's a Nahuatl scholar, right? And it shook me to my core. I felt like she was speaking in a normal human voice, and yet it it sounded larger than life. Like the what she was speaking felt like it was taller than the trees. And like, it just was huge to me. And I asked her after, as we were walking back in after the ceremony was outside in the yard, it was June or something like that. It was a beautiful day. I said, what, what was that? And she said, come inside and I'll tell you. And she proceeded to teach me that ceremony. Um, and I get a little bit emotional uh, thinking about it. You know, I, I still have the piece of paper where I wrote down the the Nahuatl words, right? Um, and and that that tells me which way to turn and what the what the words mean. And um, and she gave that to me. She said, "This is we want you to have this um, because this is sacred medicine, and we want you to share it." And, and I've had that for over 10 years now. And I've done it a couple of times. You know, I did it once when William came and Marta did not come. And so I led the ceremony that time. And I, I did it again, actually, when uh, another year when Marta did come and we did it together. Um, but as a white person, I like this is the first time that I'm saying this out loud for people to hear. Um, I am terrified of doing that ceremony in a white body. Um, so I, and I also trust that she gave it to me for a reason. And so I am holding it and I hope that I'll know when it's time. Um, and maybe, I, I don't really know what else to say. Like I, I'm stumbling a bit because this is uh, really tender for me. Um, but I, I, I hold that very sacredly and it feels so problematic because of the body that I move in the world with and the power that the power and the history and the violence that my body exhibits just by existing. Um, and that I'm aware of. And so I, I guess I want to just name that, um, here and also to say that you know I recognize as a white person you know William and I are both white people um, we're Euro descended people um, who wrote this book and and I think I walk a really um, delicate line particularly in the chapter of crisis of belonging when I talk about indigeneity because what right do I have um and not to mention that, like, you know, William and I are both students of Taoism, which is the indigenous uh, Chinese wisdom tradition. And so 
that has like I just I want to be really honest and problematize this. Like this lives within me that I have learned and and gained so much, um, so much from you know reading Viola Cordova's work and learning Taoism and uh, learning uh, from Black Americans and from um, Africans as well. You know, like from learning from these people who are not white. Um, it it has formed me. It is a part, like all of those wisdoms and all of those teachers are a part of me. And I'm so deeply grateful. And uh, it's problematic. And I kind of carry and weigh that uh, that challenge a lot, you know? And so I'm careful to say in the book that while, while I say, you know, we were all indigenous once, that uh, that is not to say that we can just go out and, you know, re-indigenize or claim indigeneity. That's not how that works. Um, yeah, I think we're in a process uh, of unpacking the harms of colonization that are is going to take a long time. And it's... You know, I really appreciate your honesty and transparency uh, about that experience because, it, you know, it, it's real and it has emotional and, and spiritual resonance with you. That that initial experience that moved you so strongly and that and then Martha, then, you know, as you know, we want to share more resonance and 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 and. Um, positivity in in the world and i'm going to share this with you and and you know it's good that you are grappling with the realities of, of the the social order now and and um and the histories that have taken place to do so in a in a thoughtful way Rather than the way that the, that the new age and the pretendians do, is they just say, "Oh, that's great! You know, let me throw on the, this um, mantle and take on an, an identity and a practice and, and beliefs that um, makes me feel good." And without that reflexivity to take a step back and, and say, okay, where is my place in this? What, how does this fit for me? I mean, I, I'm somebody, you know, I, I don't solely um, look to my own ancestors teachings and ceremonies as, as the only thing that, that informs um, how I, show up in the world and I, I've been interested in Taoism for a long time myself. I, I've learned a lot uh, about uh, through yoga and um, you know, I, I, I was very, because of the Westernization of yoga, I, I avoided it. I just treated it as, as something that, um, that the you know just getting exposed to the basics of it at first and like oh yeah this makes my body feel great but 
then going and actually taking some classes and it, those being done by white Americans and who are trying to relate some spiritual aspects of yoga through them. I just wasn't feeling it. And mm -hmm. so I said, I someday I'm going to get to uh, learn. And, and I did from, from a friend of mine who um, is a Bangladeshi American uh, yogi and Ayurvedic medicine man and, and spent, has spent many, many years devoted to these studies and uh, who also, when, when I first met them many, many years ago, was an activist in social justice circles, but then had kind of put more energy into developing the, their healing arts and practices. And, you know, they had been asked by other um, South Asian yogi practitioners to kind of per participate in something about decolonizing yoga. And he raised some questions with them about the nature of, of spirit and spiritual wisdom and development and uh, said, you know, are, are these really, are these things only for us? It, it, where, where, where is the spiritual law that says that this is only for us? And, and uh, you know, he has a very profound and, and, and deep outlook that, but I, I waited until I had the opportunity to uh, learn from him as what I felt would be a more uh, authentic insights into it. And, uh, and they were quite profound, but at the same time that I was um, getting getting some practices and, and teachings from him that were of great benefit to me in the last year, I also was referred to a book written by a Euro-American author that's based on their experience in yoga that I found to be extremely profound and insightful and and speaks universally it was actually a african-american friend who introduced me to it and had been saying for a long time you need to check out this book you need to check out this book finally i did and it happened to coincide with um learning about yoga deeply and so you know we do we we have to grapple with these very real histories of domination and exploitation and uh well at the same time recognizing our our um shared humanity hmm. and what can we do to evolve and elevate so that we can cooperate better and uh, create the shifts needed to make things uh, a, a sustainable future for our descendants because where we are at right now, we are seriously endangering mm -hmm. that for, for, um, for that future. Mm, yeah. Two thoughts. One, uh, the kind of like quick and dirty, like, I'm just gonna like learn how to do yoga because it makes me feel good or, or I'm going to, you know, the, the, the appropriation that we take on to kind of like 
mask or or fill in something that we feel like is missing that then we, it feels like, oh, we've done the thing, like we learned the the Taoism and so we're just going to kind of, we did the ayahuasca, right? And so, and so now we're, it's like that, that grasping at the intimacy, right? And how that is the non-consensual piece, how it's so different from like what's really needed is deep healing work. Um, and, and that usually, uh, I think is painful. Like it involves some, it involves an investment, kind of a pound of flesh, if you will, <laughs> to, to use that term. Like, like it, 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 it requires something from us. And I think that's the, the healing, like the, the work that we really need to do all of us, you know, I'm in a group right now. It's like a six week uh, course uh, put on by an organization called white awake. And the course is called before we were white. And it's talking a lot about, you know, what I was talking about earlier in this uh, conversation about the history of colonization and how white people became white and, and looking at it in these contexts. And the purpose is really for, and it's, and it's for white and uh, biracial people with, uh, with European ancestry, right? So it's, it's about grappling with these histories, the complexity of them, and doing that healing work and doing it together, um, like creating spaces that support, that support us to go there, um, that support us to, to reckon with, with that pain and with the histories of violence and with um, our culpability in that. And, you know, like I mentioned that I recognize that myself as a white bodied person, like when I'm moving in the world and I, it is my intention to move with deep, deep care. And yet I also know that my body means something that I don't have control over because of the history of whiteness and white dominance and violence. And so like I carry that all the time. What does it mean to actually feel that? Allow that in. Allow that to allow myself to feel that as a white person when I'm living in the world, when I'm moving in proximity with other people, whether they're white people or people of color or even just when I'm sitting alone in my like it always means something. And so what is it like to actually allow that to affect me in every moment. And that feels like the beginning of that deep healing work that I think we all need to do, which brings me to my second point, you know, as I was listening to you talk about, um, in your discussion about the, the kinds of transgressions of, of the borders of wisdom traditions, right? That, that there is, that we are one humanity and that these uh, intelligences serve us. And so there should, there, there kind of needs to be, uh, some, some give and take, some reciprocity, if you will, right. Um, to heal the, the wounds that, that we're, that we're, that, that modern civilization continues to cause against people and land. Right. And yet it's those, I, I think that it's the, the boundaries and borders of the construct of race Right, the con and and not just race, but using that as as a as a kind of jumping off place, that says, you know, yoga is only for people from South Asian of South Asian descent, or Taoism is only for people of, uh, you know, Chinese or North Asian descent. Uh, you know, that that puts up it. It's Audre Lorde said, the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. Right, master's tools only 
recreate master's house thinking. And I talk, I, I talk about this a lot. Jay and I use this as just shorthand. Mm-hmm. We just, we just, we just throw out master's house and we know what each other's talking about. And I think that that's this, con- the, the construct of race, the construct of these borders and boundaries of identities that we, pl- that we kind of box each other within. And then we also put on ourselves, well, I have to claim this identity and this identity and this identity. And then I, supposedly get some sense of belonging out of that but then i can't transgress like i can't i can't be somebody else i can't um this and this is like very very uh delicate territory that i'm treading into and i and i'm aware of that um particularly as a as a privileged white person um because there are those who say, well, like, can't I be transracial? <laughs> you know? yeah. And you get the Rachel Dolezal's and the, and the blackface, right? And the pretendianism. So it's like, this is very like tender, tender mm-hmm. territory. But what, I'm, what I've been thinking about and what I'm trying to move towards, because um, I've been really feeling really kind of itchy in the, in, the, in the clothes and the board and the boundaries of identity politics, and so I've been trying to move out of the concept of like these kind of rigid identities into a more of a fluid sense of praxis, right? Of, of, of more of a, a verb than a noun, right? And identity is a noun, but praxis is a verb. It's a doing. It's a how we live in the world and how we exist in ourselves. And so, and I think that that praxis, I think about it as kind of like an, a, a transitional identity. Like what I hope for us is that we can allow the borders and boundaries of the of master's house thinking, right? That that imperialist white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy, um, to become porous, to become transitional, so that we can merge and blend and become trans in many many ways, without forgetting without denying the history that we inherit, that that always has to have a seat at the table as we move forward. As we move forward into the future, which I hope that we have together, we have to acknowledge and pay homage to the history of colonization that has brought us to this point, that has caused this amount of pain. We want to. We don't want to. We don't want to carry that pain with us necessarily, but we have to pay respect to it. We have to acknowledge that it happened, that it has affected who we have become, and then we have to become into the future from that place. Yes, and 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 how does it get rectified? And and how? What does real reciprocity and relationship look like? Because the, the, the danger that I see, you know, that you recognize and, and that fine line that you're navigating, you know, it, it's very easy. Like I was just talking with a friend the other day about there's a movie that uh, a narrative movie that was made about the Standing Rock, no Dakota access pipeline actions in 2016 to 17 um, that came out that's told from a white perspective and that it's all all about the white protagonist and sort of their 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 own internal process and 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 getting their life together in this and it's a very well-worn trope in western 
literature and film. Indeed. You know, I'm going to yep. go find myself. In Avatar. This exa- exactly. This yeah. exotic location. Um, and and how problematic that is. And, and what a, and I remember seeing the movie poster for this film, a, a native filmmaker friend shared it on Facebook a couple months ago. And I just looked at it like, wow, that can go bad in so many different ways. And from the sounds of it, 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 it really does. Um, but you know, what, what does it, this bring up, what does it really look like to, um, to be an ally in something and authentically and there i don't remember the name of the person but there there was an australian aboriginal woman activist who made a statement one time to the effect that you know if if you came to help us you're wasting your time but if you came because you see um your you know, your humanity and your freedom uh, and and your liberation intertwined with ours, let's break bread and work together. Yes. Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what does it take? So firstly, I think I think that affinity spaces are important. You know, I think at this at this point, like this is where I sit with this concept around identity, right? Identity politics, as it were, is still important. Like it's important for me right now to acknowledge that I am a white person, right? Um, for example, because that is salient and it's relevant now. The future that I would love to live in doesn't ha- doesn't um, doesn't split people up in those in those ways. And, you know, there's a whole conversation that we can have around, uh, around, you know, W.E.V. Du Bois and uh, post-racialism and all of that. But I think that from the place that we're sitting in now, affinity spaces are important. It is, it is important for uh, different uh, groups of people of color to have affinity spaces where they can process with one another without the interference, particularly of white people, right? And it's important for uh, white people and people of uh, European descent to have spaces where we support and hold each other accountable uh, in that work as well. You know, I think it's uh, it can get tricky because <laughs> whites only spaces have a bad history. <laughs> <laughs> and also bringing people of color into into majority white spaces uh, has the potential to do a lot of harm. So we have to be really careful with with how those those white affinity spaces go. And I think that there are really amazing um, activists right now who are doing really uh, great great work who are very conscientious about about those complexities. Um, and I yeah, so I think we need to support each other in that, in that process, we need to like, you know, get, get to it because we are, we are behind the clock at this point. I also think, you know, and I, I write a lot about this in the book and I think a lot about this and I feel a lot about this in myself, in my own experience, because I think this is the work that I'm doing in this life (sighs) to heal from the orientations of severance, dominance, and extraction or appropriation. 
to to face my own insecurities, and I'm using myself as an example here, but I think that all of us as human beings probably, but certainly all of us living within or touched by a colonial system like we are, need to, or I hope that we will reckon with the 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 some the often subtle and nuanced uh, and tender ways that the pain of that the pain of the experience of that severance and dominance and extraction whether it's being done whether we've experienced it being done to us and or through witnessing our own harms done to others and also to ourselves I think that. I really hope that we we reckon with that and we hold it gently. You know, I was just having a conversation with a dear friend of mine earlier where we were talking about how we can get into this mindset of like doing the work and in, in this context, like deep self, you know, psychosomatic self work, uh, like like with a toughness, with like a let's get her done kind of a, you know, uh, orientation, which again, I think is master's house thinking. Um, and so how can we actually be really gentle with those parts of ourselves that have experienced pain, that are in fear and contraction? Because I think that in in holding those spaces with grace and compassion and tenderness, we can hold other people with grace and compassion and tenderness. And like, we become softer. We become fuller. We become more whole as individuals. And then we we move through the world in that way and we seed, we seed that in the relationships that we have with other people and it grows. So that's, and I think, I think for different people, like it's like, <laughs> go to therapy. Find a really good therapist. Like, don't waste your time with bad therapists. PSA. <laughs> Find a good therapist and like really get get into this work. You know, and I'm also I'm so uh, dedicated to this 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 kind of work, um, which I think of as a kind of decolonial healing work. Um, I want to do it with other people. Like, I want to create spaces where we can hold this stuff together. I want to hold this material with and for other people because I believe in it. And and because I think it's a way that we learn how to live the future that we want and that we deserve to have. Um, and so that's my best off-the-cuff answer to your question of how do we do that. Yeah, and and we have to navigate the balance between uh, what we do. Um, it could be said the internal work, the, yes. the introspection, and what we do as part of community, and they're both very powerful, and and have their own place. And then cultivating, you know, compassion and patience, and and the virtues that. Uh, uh, allow us to be forgiving of ourselves and of others and to to allow things that, to take time that they need to. But also that must be tempered with, you know, sometimes we need 
we we yes. need that uh, like strong like I gotta push to get it done because I, I I need to push through my own fears or resistances or our ability to you know rationalize uh, things to ourselves. Sometimes we need like a wake up call to yeah to stimulate uh, a deeper growth. So it's really you know all from my experience all indigenous um worldviews and and many um spiritual wisdom traditions point us to look at balance and mm-hmm. and so the more we very actively are aware that that that's needs to be continually navigating just we do it every day as we walk around but we don't think about it it's unconscious at this point we learned to walk when we were toddlers and now we um you know that those of us that are you know fortunate to to have our two legs and to have have our sense of balance you know we we do it pretty unconsciously but we're constantly mm-hmm. navigating that yeah. So this, you know, the distinction between inner and outer, right? Like inner work and, and healing work versus uh, living in the world, activism, um, I think is is also a facet of that kind of master's house thinking, that that orientation that that divides and, and conquers, right? That chops things up, you know, and I was thinking about um, so often therapy, which I just said, you know, people should, people should be in therapy. And I'm a big proponent of therapy. But too often therapy is something that happens, you know, behind closed doors in like a very, um, I don't, I don't know if a sterile, sterilized environment is really the right term, but it's like, it's cloistered, right? And partially that that's functional, like to have a container to be able to go deep, as it were, is necessary. And also, I think that there's this like shroud that's put over, you know, inner work or healing work that kind of like cloisters it away from the rest of the world. You know, like you go up to an ashram to do your your yoga and your meditation um, and you have to like go off somewhere separate to and then when you come back to the world, the world is a mess. And it's like, well, how do I integrate these these things? And, you know, being in various healing communities, I've, I've seen that they're beautiful and intentional and I've seen deep work being done. And yet it's, it's kind of, it's separate from the needs of the world. And there is this sense of urgency, you know, particularly, there's a real sense of urgency. Like there are, there are real harms being done. Um, there are real limits that are being crossed and and there's a real need for people to to come together to create a better world and this concept that doing the work of healing of like trauma healing is separate from that i think is like a false dichotomy that that is that comes from that uh, dichotomous perception that is part of the master's house absolutely thinking. absolutely it's all integrated in a part of our life experience and yeah. uh you know we we that's the limitations that we see that there's people in our communities they go you know quote unquote the spiritual route and that's you know sort of all they're about and they don't care about you know the day-to-day 
concerns of, of people for survival and justice and things of that nature. And then you see the people who are very focused on the um, what maybe term more pragmatic or tangible kinds of things. Right. And, and they're burning out because they don't have they don't have the time and support to be able to take care of themselves. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, while in practice it, it may, at at times it was stronger or less strong. The fact that um, aim, the American Indian movement was always articulated as being fundamentally a spiritual movement and uh, a reclamation of our ways of knowing and our traditions um, that that helped put a certain perspective on it for for me that it, there was an integration and I, from what I see from from my now fifty years of experience on this planet and being around the communities and the circles that I've been, and I see that more than ever that integration is needed and, and that, you know, all proclivities and interests and perspectives are valuable and need and need to be at the table in, in dialogue and in learning from one another to get us to a better, uh, a better place in, in the here and now and into the future. Yeah. Uh, Che and I often use the terms as within, so without, as opposed to as above, so below, Mm -hmm. they both work, but that concept that, you know, the terrain that is external, the terrain that we see and experience, right. Which is, uh, it's troubled to put it mildly, um, is a reflection of the terrain that is internal and vice versa, right? And so we need each other. You know, uh, we we become ourselves. I've really been feeling this myself uh, recently because, you know, I'm someone who kind of did go the spiritual route for a bunch of years um, out of a kind of necessity. Uh, you know, it was, um, I was... Uh, intending to be an activist and that was what I was working towards in college. And then I got really sick and had to move home to my parents' house and focus internally, focus on my health, you know? Um, And there are certain things that I don't do that I really feel called to do, but that my body won't allow myself to do. Like for example, going to Standing Rock. Um, And I just, I, you know, I grapple with that all the time. And so I've been kind of in this place of doing more kind of internal work. And I feel like I'm like stepping back out into the world in a more public way, like by having conversations uh, like this and writing the book and putting the, my ideas out there and trying to uh, engage in the world. But the point that I'm trying to make is that I recognize that, that I become stunted in a way like my like my being actually becomes stunted when I cloister myself away from other people, from the influence of the world, even when that influence is hard, even when that influence is painful. And so we actually become ourselves through the relationships that we have with other people. We become ourselves through our contact and exposure with the world as it is. And it is 
it is in that relational reciprocity that together we become the future. So we we really we we are in contact with the world and with each other now, but through that reciprocity, through that give and take, through that relationality, we can create the future, right? And and that's what I mean, I think, when I when I mean that that the concept of the inner and the outer, the healing work and the and the collective, you know, public service work uh, isn't separate. Like that that separateness is is a false dichotomy because it's it's necessarily uh, interconnected. And when we when we try to cloister either part, when we try to separate either part of it, um, we're losing something. And so, you know, I wonder what what could it be like to to do public grief work? To do, you know, like and and to do like group group healing that is decolonial, that is, you know, uh, radically and unapologetically political and contextual in terms of the history that that we inherit i think that it's th- the possibility of that kind of work is really uh promising and i hope that it gets bigger and bigger and that we bring it more and more into public spaces because i think i think it's what we need and hunger for yeah and 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 it needs to go uh, it, it, it needs to be raw and real and unfettered, uh, you know, in some places it, it has been, I would say dabbled in, uh, the truth and reconciliation hearings in South Africa and, and also in Canada around the residential schools for indigenous children, um, I, I were, were an attempt to deal with some of those um political realities and and the psycho spiritual traumas and and uh the harms done by them um you know we could have a whole show talking about the the problematics and the pros and cons of of these processes and it's beyond the scope of today's um discussion what what I really appreciated about the book when reading it was that there was this very thoughtful dialogue taking place between you and William through the chapters, this give and take of exploring things from from both perspectives, the the pragmatic and political informed by uh, a, a decolonial and um, humanist and liberatory frame of reference with the deep um, and and timeless, you know, spiritual and philosophical aspects of our existence, and and so I think that's why it it resonates so well and was so timely with the pandemic because you know as you were saying we we benefit so greatly from doing stuff together in in community and we we exponentially magnify Mm -hmm. what what we can accomplish when we come together in in healthy ways and you know, for with the separation that was created to 
um, whether it was around schooling or workplaces um, and and families being concerned to visit with each other and the risks to uh, elders and immunocompromised people and uh, you know the vulnerable within their families and uh, you know the and because we had the technology that allowed for a lot of things to go virtual and we were able to hang on to some semblances of community in a digital space. But as we all know, it's, you know, it's, it's just a substitute, just like the telephone uh, was, was certainly a, a powerful tool of connection that, you know, was real time and, and beyond, you know, sending letters back and forth or messengers or whatever, and to fill in the times between when we see each other in person, but, you know, being in the same room as one another is just always that, that there's a heightened level of experience and exchange that takes place. So, that that very human need for sitting in in a circle with other people or sitting at a table was stunted at a time when now the we're being faced with a virus and um, so I, I I hope that the book really reaches uh, a lot of people and who are looking for uh, words to put to the things that they've been feeling and these intangibles as, as they grappled, as we've all grappled with how to navigate this, this, this time that we're in. Yeah. I, you know, as, as we get closer to wrapping up the word, I think about relationality a lot, relationship, uh, connection. And, and I use the term in the book, remember, right? That we have to literally like remember in terms of memory, but also reconnect in so many ways, like remember within ourselves, remember together. Um, and I think, I think that there's something about that connection and relationality and coming together with, you know, going back to Cordova with, you know, care and respect and reciprocity and, and not just in human ways, but, it, but with the more than human uh, beings as well, that is the medicine, the antidote to that, that framework of severance and dominance and extraction um, and so being able to come together um, in careful ways, ways that are full of care, I think is really needed and really hopeful as we as we move forward. And yes, it's you know it's it's even more challenging with um, with COVID out there and um, and 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 not just COVID, but you know increasing political polarization and it seems like increasing violence it's a it, 
it's a scary time, I think. Yeah, the doomsday and, clock is the furthest <laughs> the clock. along right, it's ever more, been, even beyond what it was in the Cold War. Yeah. So, and 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 the the I think the animal uh, response to that kind of fear is to contract, to go in, and and that's understandable. And I think we need to be gentle with with that contractive experience, um, both just individually, personally, as, as we get scared, but also collectively, as we see in our society, and also prioritize, try to like be courageous in the ways that we move into connection with one another in, again, careful and respectful ways. And I think by doing that together, we are we are re-knitting, we are remembering uh, the future that that we all deserve in which hopefully uh, we can all get free because that's that's the world I want to live in. Yes, indeed. Mm. Jason, thank you so, so much for joining me and grappling with these really uh, challenging, complicated, tender uh, issues. This feels... Um, this feels really, really crucial for me, for the book. And I, I just so appreciate your willingness to, to dive in and be in the space with me and to bring your brilliance as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I, you know, I really appreciated the book when I read it. It was extremely timely for um, the losses that I had experienced in, in both during the pandemic related to COVID and and just other um, friends and family passing away from other things. And it, it gave me a, a lot of good things to think about and it enhanced things I, I had been thinking about. And so I, I'm very pleased to be able to be on the podcast and, and to share reflections on this particular chapter and you know, I, I, um, my cat agrees and, <laughs> uh, she, she wanted to get media famous, um, and get She's her, media famous. What, what's her name? Asada. Asada. And she is, um, going to be 18 years old next month and happy birthday, Asada. Yeah. She's, I've had her since she was about six months old and, mm. um, yeah, the, the, I was just thinking when you were talking about the, you know, the the tensions that we feel about the world that we're in. You know, my social media, had, because of the activist connections that I have and, and just my proclivities, I, um, you know, get tons of bad news all the time about the state of the world. And so it's like, I have to subscribe to the stuff that's just puppies and kittens and panda bears oh, yeah, absolutely. and yep. babies and ducklings mm -hmm. and puppies and, <laughs> and kittens. And uh, yeah. I, I need that balance to uh, show up in, in my feed. Mm. You need that dopamine <laughs> to come in and yeah. Soothe the cortisol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I appreciate that, that she was here for our conversation as well, too. And uh, yeah, I just wish you the, all the best with the book and the podcast and, and future endeavors. 
Thank you very much, friend. I very well may call you back. Sounds good. To come back on. Okay. All right. All right. Take care. You too. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us in this episode of the Living in a Time of Dying podcast. If you are moved by the material discussed here, you can read or listen to more in the eponymous book, Living in a Time of Dying, Cries of Grief, Rage, Love, and Hope, coming soon both in print and audio from booksellers everywhere. And if you want to hear more, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts in order to be updated when new episodes drop. You can also find out more about my work at soulmentor.org. Until next time, remember, you are an enfoldment of the universe, showing care to itself. Everything is God. Live well. Die easy. In Love and Rage, I'm your host, Megan Elizabeth Tauk. Take care and be well. <laughs>